morning. Good to see everybody. My name is Jeff, if we haven't met. And as the kids are strolling out, I guess it'll be a good, good intro for me. I'm going to start by talking about the movie Monsters, Inc. You remember that movie? Uh, spoiler alert, but it came out in 2001. So if you haven't seen it by now, I'm not sorry that, you know, it's plenty of time. Uh, but that's Solly, the blue monster, and Mike Wazowski, the green monster. And then my favorite character, I think, was Raj, right? Always watching. That's what she says. Uh, but I was thinking about Monsters, Inc. this week. We're going to talk, we're going to do a parable eventually. It'll take us a little while to get there. Um, but I was thinking about Monsters, Inc. because we'll talk about this. But when Jesus is telling parables, he's, he's, he's trying to challenge paradigms. And Monsters, Inc. is one of these fun movies. I thought it was really creative, if you remember, if you saw it. It, it starts with the premise that there's a monster in your closet or a monster under your bed. And the monsters live in another realm, kind of, in their town. I thought it was creative. Monstropolis. That's pretty clever, right? Monstropolis. And uh, we actually could, we could have a lot of fun talking about this movie. Because Monstropolis is powered by human fear. Isn't that interesting? The monsters scare kids, and then they capture the screams. And the screams of the kids who are terrified of the monsters is what powers the city. And, um, and the powers that be in the movie, th- this is the way it's always been. It's the way they feel like it's always going to be. And they will do whatever they have to do to protect it and keep it going as is, right? And what Solly and Mike Wazowski discover in the movie is that uh, human laughter is actually exponentially more powerful than a scream, right? That joy and happiness is more powerful than fear, and so they, they tra- I mean, every, like, there's a total paradigm shift. The way the, the monsters relate to humans, the way the monsters, like, live their lives, the amount of energy available, and everything changes because they're willing to abandon a flawed framework and adopt a new one, one that they never imagined. It, and it's a good movie because I remember getting to the end of me and, like, I never saw, like, that's a, that's a good, I never saw that coming. Like, they, I didn't see that. I, didn't, I don't know where that came out. No, that was, that, was really, that was really clever. That's cool. That's good. It's just a silly, a silly movie illustration, but priming the pump for maybe digging a little deeper. I was going to do uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I thought I was going to anyway. Last series, I preached through 2 Corinthians, and I love it when I preach through a book because I always just know what I'm doing next. <laughs> I'm just doing the next verse. Uh, but when we do, we kind of, sometimes we'll do a book of the Bible and sometimes we'll do a theme. And whenever we do a theme, it's a major theme. And so there's a lot of texts. And so this series, I've been kind of like working my way through. And I thought I was going to do 1 Corinthians 11. We will eventually do it. But I, I don't, it wasn't even until Wednesday that I really landed. But I kept coming back to Luke 14. Uh, I really do believe that the apostles heard, you know, the great commission from Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And the early apostles, Peter, James, and John, they were, they were working hard to, to, help, to help the churches obey and practice the things that Jesus said. I think Paul, the same thing. And so when you read through the letters to the churches, you get a lot of, of things that Jesus said being worked out. And, and as we talk about the table and we talk about communion and then what it means for the church to practice this together, I really felt like a lot of the main themes just kind of echo and resonate through Luke chapter 14. So we're going to spend a little time in it this morning before we move on to other things. And if you're just connecting with us or if you kind of forget, we, 
We're kind of, I guess, in essence, almost answering two questions. We've been, a- we've been asking the question, why did Jesus initiate this? Why do we practice communion? Where did the Lord's table come from? Why do we, what was he thinking? And in the last three weeks, we spent a lot of time, it's kind of maybe even theologically talking about how this is just one of the ways Jesus has chosen to meet with his people. And we literally encounter him. It's a sacred mystery. We confess more than we can explain, but we encounter Jesus in the bread and in the cup. This is his meal. But maybe this week and moving forward, the question we'll start leaning into a little bit more was, what was he hoping would happen? By inviting the church to do this in remembrance of him regularly, continuously, what was he hoping would happen in the church to this group of people who participated in this meal that he was providing, that he was hosting. So the parables in Luke chapter 14, it doesn't start till verse 16. And I, I'd, like to take, I'd like to read the first 15 verses and set it up a little bit before we get to the actual parable. Uh, we'll begin in chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, And the people were watching him closely. Kind of just gets you what's going on. People already know about Jesus. They want to know what's going on. Uh, It's in the home of a Pharisee. And and, uh, we'll talk a little bit about honor and status and reputation. I have a feeling that this guy was really excited. Homes were much more open. I mean, you almost would, it wasn't really like this, but you would imagine, you know how we've moved most of our outdoor life into our backyards? (laughs) Maybe imagine, I don't know, it sounds like maybe 70, 80 years ago, you spent all your outdoor time in your front porch, right? If you were having a meal, if you were, you were in your front porch, people could walk by, could see, could, could even participate for a little bit. The homes in Israel and Jerusalem are much more open. And so people see what's going on. They're paying attention. And the Pharisees probably beginning, just really excited. My house, my home is the talk of the town this week. Uh, most of you, I think, have been around long enough to know a little bit about Pharisees. But if you're newer to church and what's a Pharisee, a Pharisee it was a movement. And this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it's pretty accurate. The Pharisees were a group of people who believed that if, if the people of Israel could clean themselves up, then God would come and rescue them from Roman occupation. <laughs> and so it was very much a, I mean, the, the word legalism gets thrown as a very much a, a, a a a rigorous movement of kind of cleaning yourself up, kind of willing yourself to cleanliness so that then maybe God would notice you and rescue you as a people. Jesus has all kinds of problems with that kind of thinking. In fact, he, he tends to get the most frustrated with the Pharisees as you read through the Gospels. Uh, partly because they have a misunderstanding of the kingdom of God, which we'll talk about, and also because the Pharisees were just so sure that they were right. And they were really proud about it. And that, maybe more than anything, really upset Jesus. But people are hanging out at this house. Others are watching. and, And there's a man there whose arms and legs are swollen. So this man would be unclean, impure, or we could at least say he's broken. Certainly unwelcome at this meal. I mean, a lot of people are like, like don't, don't touch me. I'm ceremonial clean. You're not clean. Like, wh- why is this guy coming through our dinner meal? I mean, it would have happened some, but it was a little awkward. And Jesus is the uh, ultimate dinner guest in this story. It just, it's actually kind of funny when you see what Jesus is doing as you read through this. But he just keeps doing things to challenge his host and the guest there. 
So first he asked the Pharisees and the experts in the religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? Can I heal this guy? Or there's all kinds of uh, rules and laws around what we can and can't do on the Sabbath. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath or not? Even to this day in Israel, it's true. And they refuse to answer. So you're going to see this. Jesus is going to challenge and they're going to refuse to answer. They're going to not engage. They're going to try to change the subject. So Jesus, pretty profound moment. He touches the sick man and the guy's healed. Now, I don't know, but this guy just right before their eyes, he's healed and Jesus sends him away. And Jesus doesn't stop there. So he turns to them and he says, well, which of, your, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If, if your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, kind of pressing in. But again, they don't answer. They don't want to engage. They don't like where this is going. I have a feeling the host is like, what was I thinking? Why did I invite this guy? Verse 7, Jesus, again, doesn't stop here. When Jesus noticed, he's just watching the party unfold. When he noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave this, we could say, unsolicited advice, right? When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat and then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. No, no, no. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. And you will be honored in front of all the other guests. He's critiquing what he just observed happened. (laughs) And then he's going to make this statement. And if you've been with us for a while, we've been talking about modern day Babylon and The way of modern-day Babylon is a lot of self-exaltation, even if it means pushing others to the ground. And the way of the kingdom is the opposite, right? It's humbling ourselves and serving others to lift them up. And part of, I guess you could say, some of the logic of the kingdom is we don't exalt ourselves now because we do believe that as we follow Jesus, in the same way that he was exalted from the grave and he now seats at the right hand of the Father, Uh, we will be exalted in Christ, with Christ, if we follow his path, carry our cross. Uh, And so Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But he's not even done there. (laughs) So this is all the same dinner party, right? It's a lot of raw, raw good times, Jesus, right? Verse 12, then he turned to his hosts When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors, which is exactly what this guy did. Because all they're going to do is invite you back, and that's your only reward. You've already got your reward. Good job. There's no exaltation from God because you've already exalted yourself and gotten your own reward. No, he says, instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you. He will exalt you for inviting those who could not repay you. So just... Critique after critique after critique, if you will, challenging this whole dinner party. Why is he doing this? What's going on? Well, let's read one more verse, and then we'll, we'll lean into this before we actually even get to our parable this morning. But, but verse 15, I, th- I think what's going on here is you've got this really awkward situation. They've already been trying to evade and avoid and ignore the questions Jesus has been asking. And now he's being, and we'll talk about this. Jesus is being really, really direct And it's not producing any fruit. It's one of the reasons we're going to get into the parable in a second. But one of the main reasons Jesus works through parables is because a lot of what he's trying to do is disorient us 
so that we can abandon some false frameworks and, and, and accept what the kingdom of God really is like, right? And a lot of times that only happens through indirect communication. Anyway, we'll get there. But this man, they're, they're trying to evade and avoid and, and ignore these questions. And so to change the subject, this guy hears Jesus talk about the resurrection of the righteous. And Jesus has been really clear. It lo- it's going to look a lot different than what you're doing right now. And this guy still says, oh, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And I really do think implied in that is it's going to be just like this. Only we'll be up in the heaven. Like it, it will be shiny, right? Like it's just all of us around the table will obviously be there. And won't it be great just, you know, the resurrection of the righteous. This is, this is what the kingdom is all about. And what Jesus is now going to do is, since his direct communication hasn't worked, he's going to launch into this parable, this indirect communication, because he's been trying to tell them, and they haven't understood that the kingdom of God is actually almost the exact opposite of what they're doing. (laughs) Everything they're doing is the opposite of what God is going to do. And he needs to shake it up a little bit. One of the authors I was reading, uh, he said this. I thought this was fun. He said, for Jesus, the parables were not used to explain things to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question all of their previous explanations and understandings. Uh, Far from being illustrations that illuminate what people haven't yet figured out, the parables are designed to pop every circuit breaker in the mind. For example, if you mentioned Messiah... The disciples would have pictured an armed king on horseback, not Jesus on the cross. Or if you mentioned forgiveness, and this happened with Jesus and the disciples, and they would start setting up rules about when it should run out. How many times do we have to forgive? Is seven enough, Jesus? Right? But from Jesus' point of view, the sooner their misguided minds had the props knocked out from under them, the better. After all, they're yammering about how God should or should not run his own operation. Getting people to just stand there with their eyes popped open and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is going to try to do. He's not trying to explain an idea in the sense of, let me help you understand something, right? He's already kind of gone about the direct communication and it didn't get anywhere, But what he's going to do through the parable is to try to call into question their assumptions about the kingdom of God. And this is important. I want you to hear this. Because in their mind, the kingdom of God is just a projection of their own distorted value system up into the skies. (laughs) We talk all the time about how you'll never drift into the Jesus way. But if you're just drifting, if you're not intentional... If you're just drifting, you will drift into what we call modern-day Babylon. And over time, if you're not careful, you'll just take the values that you picked up in modern-day Babylon and you'll start to assume that, oh, it just gets shinier on its way to heaven. That's what's happening around the table. And Jesus is saying, no, you've you've got this all wrong. Or another quote about this. This is from, I just got to tell you, a guy named Klein Snodgrass. There you go. He says, direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who already thinks they understand. 
People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up conforming the message into the channels of their current understanding of reality. Something we all need to be wary of. That's why from time to time I'll talk about how the discipleship journey begins by learning about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, his kingdom. But then at some point as you learn about Jesus, it opens the door for you to begin to learn more about yourself. We talk about self-awareness here. And then I do believe the more you learn about yourself, the more it opens the door to learn more about Jesus. But some of this back and forth in this discipleship journey is unlearning some things that you were handed. Maybe when you were five, maybe when you were 14, maybe when you were 24, but you started to build the wrong structure and Jesus wants to knock the props down so it all collapses and he can rebuild what's true. I mean, it's what the Pharisees are doing around the table is Jesus is being as direct as he can be, but they are just ignoring it or rejecting it because it doesn't fit into their system or they're reworking it in their minds so that it fits in their already made system. And Jesus, your, your system's all wrong. Your framework is all wrong. So he tells a parable, indirect communication. Indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to con- confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener, to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. Jesus' parables, then, are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, to reconsider their way of viewing reality, and then change their behavior. Again, it's a paradigm shift. And it's tricky. It's one of those things that's even difficult to talk about because how do you, how do you really tell someone that your framework isn't exactly right? I mean, Jesus, it's hard. It's, it's one of these things that you've got to be aware. You've got to pay attention. You've got to notice. You've got to work with the Spirit of God. Because if you see everything through a framework, how do you change that framework? That in and of itself can be a scary proposition. Everything either reinforces your framework or you have to discard it. So I think what Jesus is doing here to introduce this new thing that the kingdom of God actually is, sometimes these parables that he tells actually have to dismantle what you already think you know. That's never easy, but it's critical for the discipleship journey. And as I was reflecting even on what Jesus is doing with the parables, I also want to humbly submit to you that that's part of why we practice communion. (laughs) It's not, I'm not going to lecture you on what we're doing at communion. You are going to participate in an event. And right now in the series, we do this every week. And I hope over time, there's little things and maybe it will, we'll talk about these things to, to heighten them. But over time you realize, oh, this is what I'm doing. I didn't realize what I was doing. This is incredible. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll get there. But let's get to this parable. So here's the parable itself, Luke 14, 16 to 24. It's, it's a pretty good one. Jesus is just masterful. So here he says, verse 6, he replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and he sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. Or more important things to do. Or maybe this host wasn't of a status that they respected. But they have all kinds of reasons why they're not coming. One said, I bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married. 
so I can't come. In essence, what they're saying is, I kind of like the way my life is, and I don't really want you to disrupt it right now. Thank you very much. I'm not coming to your party. Now, the servant returns and tells his master what they had said. And it says his master was furious. He was angry. They rejected his invitation with, I mean, these excuses. I mean, why wouldn't they come? But what's fascinating in the parable as Jesus is telling it is that this, this master, this host, takes his anger and his frustration and he rechannels it into incredible generosity. He moves from anger to this amazing act of grace. And this is what he says. He says, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. It's almost like Jesus is saying, well, I invited all the important people because that's what you do when you're having a party, but they don't want to come. So I'm going to do the exact opposite. Invite all the people at the bottom. I'm going to make this a party that, that no one's ever seen before, right? And again, he's indirectly trying to teach. This is what the kingdom of God is really like. And after the servant had done this, notice this. He said, there's still room for more. And so again, this par- Jesus is so masterful. It's just a short little story, but he's telling us so much. And he's telling us that this host, this master is driven by this passion to fill his house with life. There's still more room. I've got more to give. There's more love to go around. Let's fill this place. And so what does he say? I don't even care about status anymore. I invited the most important. They didn't come. Now I'm inviting the least important, but status is out the window now. Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and anyone you find, bring them in. This house has to be full. And then he says, and this again is a real warning to the people sitting at the table at the party. None of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet if they don't want to be here. But it's going to be quite the party. (laughs) So it's a pretty brilliant story. And and again, whenever you whenever you walk through a parable, you got to be I mean, in some ways, if you think you understand a parable after the first time you read it, you probably haven't read it. You got to sit with these for a while. But as you meander through and try to, try to un- engage it, it's usually good to pay attention to the context. And since, and since Jesus precedes this whole story by talking about where people are sitting and who is getting invited, there is a, a deep sense that he is commenting. He's trying to talk about this idea, this, this modern-day Babylon or first-century Roman Babylon kind of mentality of, of what makes you important and valuable. And I do think as Jesus, he, 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 the, the, the host is flipping it upside down, inviting the least important. But I, I really think in verse 23, when he says invite, invite anyone, what he's saying is this whole framework of status is gone in my kingdom. Like it's not even about inviting the lowly anymore because status just isn't a thing in my kingdom. There's no more jockeying for position in my kingdom. We've talked about this before. It's one of the radical things that Jesus says. In my kingdom, everybody aims to be a servant. That's why the Last Supper, John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. This is what your master does. So this is what you do. And this whole worldly construct of status and who's where on the ladder up the top, gone. The ladder's gone. 
It just doesn't even fit in the kingdom of God. It's a whole different framework. The only thing that matters is if you show up at the party and you're in the presence of Jesus. And it really is the sense that the generosity of God, we talk about this all the time, scarcity and our fear of scarcity and all that it's doing. The generosity of God should pop our mind circuits, right? And reframe how we view the world because, because Jesus is king, there's enough to go around. We don't have to fight for more of ours. We don't have to take it before somebody else gets it. This master is generous. And reading through Luke 14, it doesn't seem like he's too, too caught up in cleanliness or Sabbath regulations. He doesn't care that much about status. He's just really excited about filling his house with people. This relentless passion, this gracious desire to share his love and his joy with those who want to be there. <laughs> Some of what we do at the Lord's table And maybe the most important thing I want to say this morning as we talk about the Lord's table coming to this party, receiving this invitation from Jesus. You know, I said, what what was Jesus hoping would happen? And we'll get more specific and practical in the weeks ahead. But this week, what I want to say is I think Jesus is hoping that the world would change. What is happening at the table is changing the world. That's what Jesus wants to happen when you and I participate in the Lord's Supper. I know some of you have a deep longing to change the world, and you look around you, and what can I do? Well, one of the first things you can do is just participate in this meal. Show up and be a different kind of human being, participating in a different kind of community that says all are welcome and all are equal, and we just enjoy being together, and we're here to serve one another. Because what happens then is you and I come here, and we, are a, we, we get to experience the change that comes with the gracious generosity of Jesus. And then we, because, and as we eat this meal, we are changing the world because then we're changed as we sit with Jesus and then we go forth and we are a part of the change. And then we are distinct and different. And people, I see you're not trying to climb to the top, but you're seeking to serve others or you don't, you don't seem to care that that person's sitting at the uncool table. <laughs> Well, I don't even think that way anymore. That framework's been torn down. I just see another human being and I want to love and serve them. I'm called to serve them. That's why I'm here. So, so what is happening at the table is changing the world. First, we come as sinners invited to the party who say yes to the invitation and we stop our excuses. And then we come as someone who is being changed so that we can learn to see the world through the the eyes of Jesus, through the lens of love that Jesus presents to us. So let me try to put a little bit of hands and feet on this. Let let me, we talk a lot about consumerism here. That's a big part of modern day Babylon. And we really weren't created to be consumers. We were created in the image of a God who is a creator. (laughs) We were created to create, um, to, to use God's power for goodness and love, to, to create life and love and joy in this world. But we live in modern-day Babylon, which is filled with consumerism. So just think about this contrast. At a restaurant, we are in control. And re, we review our options, and we order what we want, when we want, and how we want. 
And we get to decide who we're going to share a table with and who we're going to avoid. Who's not allowed to sit at our table with us. And again, this is, this is if you don't stop, step back and think, this, this can form your soul. You just get used to thinking, well, yeah, when I eat, I get, to, I get to choose what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and I choose who I sit with. But I want, to think, I want you to think with me about how radical it is. This is some of that indirect communication I'm talking about. How radical it is that you and I would participate in the Lord's Supper together. Because at the Lord's table, we are guests. It's not our table, it's his table. Jesus is the host. And we are each invited and we are welcomed by Christ. We say yes to this invitation. But we do not choose who we share the meal with. You didn't send out invitations to say who could and couldn't be at church this morning while you participate in communion. You didn't choose that. You just showed up. And you do not place an order. And you don't get to customize your beverage. Right? Instead... Each one of us will receive the same bread, the body of Christ, and we will drink from the same cup, the blood of Christ. Because at the Lord's table, we are all humble recipients of the same unmerited grace. We don't deserve it. It comes as gift. But we do this together, and it is a radical statement in our world. It changes the world. Or I read this quote this week, again, leaning into this. I mean, I know there's sometimes some, there's sometimes some church pride, like, oh, I love the people who go to this church. They're great people. It's true, but we're all a mess, too. <laughs> we really are. We really are a mess. And in true community, we will not choose our companions, for our choices are so often limited by self-serving motives. I mean, again, one of the big issues for why the Pharisees have to keep the, the lame and the blind and the sick away is self-serving motives. Let's, but in true community, our, companion, our companions will be given to us by grace. And often they will be persons who will upset our settled view of self and world. I love this. In fact, we might define true community as that place where the person you least want to live with lives. (laughs) But that's what happens sometimes at the Lord's table. You don't pick who's here, but we come together, sinners saved by grace. And we're making a radical statement by saying, I will share this bread and this cup with you. Because I see humanity different Because Jesus has given me a new lens. The only thing that we have in common may be Jesus, but that's enough. Somehow that's enough. And we'll talk more about this, but I think this is going to be really important as we get into 2024, right? We'll gather together. And maybe sometimes it'll feel like all we have in common is Jesus, but that'll be enough. And we'll come together and we'll learn from each other and we'll challenge each other and we'll grow together to be like Jesus together, and just a little bonus, maybe, maybe I should just stop there. But just, Luke 14 keeps going with the cost of the disciple, and, and you can read it. It's great. But I just, I, I always read like the broader context. And Luke 15 just began with these verses. And I think it's still, it's all interconnected to who gets to come to the table. <laughs> but Luke decides to start chapter 15, which is really one of these famous chapters in terms of the parables in chapter 15, finding the lost. And Luke says this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Isn't that a great phrase? I should ask for a raise of hands. How many of you are notorious sinners? 
Tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. But the table of the Lord is where even notorious sinners come to eat with Jesus. In fact, I read a little bit more first service, but I probably read more than I needed. Let me just, I just had a, have a quote in this book that I want to read. Because Jesus ate with these tax collectors. They were like the lowest of the lows because they sold out. I mean, they were ritually impure and they had sold out to the Romans and almost basically robbed from their brothers and sisters in Israel. And, and, and talking about these notorious sinners, these tax collectors, even prostitutes that Jesus sat with as he was enacting in the kingdom, what was Jesus doing? It says, did Jesus not expect such people to reform? His own demanding moral teaching surely implies that he did. He expected that. And Zacchaeus, for one, did so. But Jesus did not wait for such people to repent before sharing meals with them. Again, this is some of the contrast with, with, with the ideology of the Pharisees. This is what distinguished his practice from Jewish leaders who would not have denied that people like tax collectors could repent and obtain forgiveness from God. To put it simply, Jesus did not keep his distance from anyone who needed the love of God, whether they needed liberation from demons, healing of sickness, or forgiveness of sin. This was his mission from God, and it left him no room for protecting himself from being contaminated by the impurity or immorality of others. Uh, Jesus invites you. We, we say here across you, come as you are. You say, I'm the most notorious of sinners. We say, come as you are. But don't stay where you are because that's not life. Living as a notorious sinner, that's just going to lead you to death and destruction and hell on earth. So don't stay there, but come to Jesus. Come as you are. Come. You don't have to clean yourself up. Just come to the table. <laughs> And, and sit with Jesus and dine from Jesus and learn from Jesus and then allow, listen to him and allow some of his wisdom to come in through the back window and begin to reorient all of who you are. And then all of a sudden you'll realize that laughter produces exponentially more energy than fear. <laughs> you, you, you'll realize that life can be richer and deeper and fuller than you ever imagined it could be. The kingdom of God is a shared meal where we invite all kinds of people. Jesus invites all kinds of people to the table of the Lord. He was constantly sitting with the uncool kids, the moral outcasts at the table. And he is trying to tell us in Luke 14, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. All the wrong people invited to join Jesus at his table. Jesus sitting at the table with sinners. Now, I will say the church hasn't always gotten this right. Uh, churches have restricted communion at points. Even some still do this today. You weren't baptized in our tradition, you can't have communion here. You weren't baptized in our local congregation, you can't have communion here. I think that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, across you, we don't practice. Look, if you are here today and you, you want to meet with Jesus, there's something in you that you know that you know that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. I got baptized in another church. That's all right. Just come. Come to the table. We're one family. We're not putting a fence around this thing. It's not our table. It's the table of the Lord. 
Again, what is the table trying to do? It is trying to bring us together. Some of you have been informed by story. The table is trying to end the rivalry that began with Cain and Abel. It's trying to end that rivalry. It's trying to stop the narrative of us versus them. But somehow the church keeps trying to sneak it back in. Yeah, I know there's no us versus them in the kingdom, but can we just, can't we just sneak it back in? Because it feels really good when there's an us and there's a them. No, no, Jesus, that's gone. That whole framework is gone. It doesn't exist anymore in the kingdom of God. It's a huge paradigm shift. It was hard for people. We'll talk about it later. It was hard for Peter. It was hard for people. It was controversial. People said horrible things about Jesus because of this. Because people were afraid that a sinner or someone unworthy might come to the table. But that's the whole point. The whole point is that we come to the table as the invited unworthy. We never come as the deserving. We are always the invited unworthy, invited by Jesus out of his generosity and love to join him at the table. We don't come because we're worthy. We come because we're invited. And we look into the eyes of Jesus and we just can't say no. There's no one like him. Lord, to who else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Or let me say it this way. The communion table is where Jesus wants to heal the world of all that divides us. Forgive us our sins and give us his life. To end some of these false paradigms that I'm just here to consume or it's us versus them. And no, no, he's doing something radically different in his kingdom. So if you want your sins forgiven, if you, if you want to be a part of changing the world, if you want to meet with Jesus, if you want to feast on him so that you can have life eternal, sacred mystery, right? Then we're, you're invited to the table. But it's not just something we do. You are a part of something incredibly significant. God wants to change the world. And he gave us this meal so that we could be a part of that change. Amen?